From PRI, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The dog days of summer bring a plague for people and pets, biting and stinging insects. Flea collars can bring relief to our animal companions, but they might create an extra problem for us. Flea collars are designed to work by spreading that pesticide on the pet, and when kids come in contact with their pet, which they do on a daily basis, they come into contact with that very toxic pesticide. Also, there's an authoritative list of the most pesticide-laden fruits and vegetables, but shoppers have their own ideas. I think berries would be at the top of the list. I would expect the softer greens. I would expect perhaps spinach. I would guess like bell peppers. I'd guess like maybe root vegetables like potatoes, sweet potatoes, yams, stuff like that. We have the answer and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. Summertime can bring a bumper crop of fleas and ticks for our cats and dogs. Many people use pesticide-containing flea collars on their pets, but the EPA is now banning some of those collars because young children who snuggle up to their pets can get exposed to unhealthful amounts of toxins. The ban comes after eight years of litigation brought by the Natural Resources Defense Council to force the EPA to act. We called up Miriam Rotkin-Elman, a senior scientist at NRDC, to tell us about the ban and wiser choices for parents and pet owners. Welcome to the program. Nice to be here. Give me the basics here. What's the problem with flea collars? We're concerned that there are pesticides that are extremely toxic for kids used in flea collars. And flea collars are designed to work by spreading that pesticide on the pet. And when kids come in contact with their pet, which they do on a daily basis, they come into contact with that very toxic pesticide. So talk to me about these two chemicals. What are the problems with them as far as science knows? So there are two different pesticides that are part of related classes of pesticides. So tetrachlorophenphos is a kind of pesticide that's called an organophosphate. And over the last 15 years or so, there's mounting evidence that organophosphates can interfere with the developing brain so that prenatal exposures and early life exposures to this pesticide can actually result in delays in motor development, loss of IQ points, or neurobehavioral problems, um, such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So this class, organophosphates, has been linked to all those different problems. The second pesticide, which is perpoxer, is part of a related class of chemicals called carbamates. And unfortunately, it also has many of the same toxic characteristics. Both of these are readily available still, unfortunately, on the shelves. So uh, what has EPA uh, decided to do about these flea collars? EPA took the right action on Propoxer in March and issued a cancellation order. Unfortunately, they gave the manufacturers of these flea collars a pretty sweet deal and allowed for a really long phase-out period. That phase-out period means that the company can keep making these flea collars despite the fact that EPA found there to be unsafe for children And then also they can continue to be sold um, for up to two years to retailers. And then retailers can sell them indefinitely. 
Now, the other pesticide that we're worried about, tetrachlorophenphos, the Environmental Protection Agency has been completely silent. We have not received any notification, and that's why we're continuing to pursue our court case and hoping that the court can help us get a timeline from EPA and help move it in the right direction as well. And what exactly are these products that are going to be taken off the market, although it sounds like it's going to take two years? So the brand name for tetrachlorophenphos is called Hearts, and so they have a number of products, but you can usually see the name Hearts on the label somewhere. And then Propoxer-containing products can go by a whole host of names, Biospot, Adams, Zodiac, Sargents. Those are all examples of products that contain Propoxer, but it's really important to actually take a look at the active ingredient and look for the word Propoxer as well, because they do change the names quite a bit. Miriam, I have to ask you, if these chemicals are bad for children, what about the pets? Well, pets are mammals too. And unfortunately, these two pesticides, tetrachlorophenphos and Propoxer, really interfere with the nervous system of mammals too. There are some, you know, good rules of thumb for preventing harm to both pets and kids when you're talking about using pesticides. What are those good rules? It's always important to keep your toxic pesticides as your last resort and look for alternative methods to avoid using these pesticides at all. If you do need to use some kind of pesticide for fleas, There are a whole host of options that are less toxic and even some that can be taken by the pet as a pill and then therefore don't leave that toxic residue on their fur, which can harm kids. Uh, Miriam, do you have a dog? I do have a dog. So what do you do with your dog when it comes to protecting your dog from ticks and fleas? My dog, even though she hates it, gets regular baths, um, and she looks at me very sad when, I, when it's time, but you know she gets those baths every other week. With just regular dog shampoo, it doesn't require any you know, special toxic shampoos or anything like that. Um, we keep her bed clean as well, and we try to keep our house pretty clean. And honestly, that's all I've ever had to use for fleas. Um, you know, every once in a while, there's a flea, and the regular bathing really takes care of it. We do live in an area where ticks are of concern, and so I do end up needing to use a pesticide every once in a while, the least toxic available that um, is known to provide good coverage for ticks. And I pay attention to where my dog is spending time. If I'm spending time with a lot of kids, I may forego the pesticide treatment. Miriam Rotkin-Ellman is a senior scientist at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thanks so much for taking this time with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Despite the rapid growth of organic food production, pesticides are widely used on America's farms. And as pests become resistant, more pesticides are applied, which can mean more of these risky chemicals show up in the foods we buy. To help guide consumers, the Environmental Working Group is out with the latest version of its annual list of fruits and vegetables with the least and most pesticide residues. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom has more. It's 6 o'clock on a Tuesday, grocery store rush hour at my neighborhood market in Cambridge, Massachusetts. People pop in after work to get food for dinner. In the produce department, amid bins of broccoli, piles of oranges, and stacks of bananas, I ask shoppers to take a guess. Which item of produce has the most pesticide residue? I think berries would be at the top of the list. They have such thin skins and they like absorb things like that really easily. 
I would expect the softer greens. I would expect perhaps spinach. The softer the leaf, the more little pests want to eat it. I would guess like one of the more colorful vegetables. I would guess like bell peppers or something like that. Because I feel like whenever I eat stuff, it's like the stuff with the most color. It's the stuff that's being artificially kind of messed with. I'd guess like maybe root vegetables like potatoes, sweet potatoes, yams, stuff like that. I think I saw something once that said like apples are like really high as far as pesticides, but that's the only one I remember. He's right. All of those foods are on the dirty dozen list. However, though an apple a day may keep the doctor away, it also comes spiked with a cocktail of five different types of chemical pesticides. Apples routinely top the Environmental Working Group's dirty dozen list, but this year the researchers are particularly concerned about a chemical called diphenylamine, or DPA. Roughly 80% of American apples are sprayed with DPA after they've been picked to protect the skin of the fruit during shipping. Sonia Lunder is a senior analyst with the Environmental Working Group. Europe actually took action in 2012 to ban this pesticide treatment because they couldn't guarantee the consumers in Europe that this DPA treatment didn't break down to form cancer-causing impurities or break down products when the apples were stored. Number two on the Dirty Dozen list, strawberries. Strawberries grow on the ground. They're very susceptible to pests and spoilage. They're also a high-value crop. And so they have an aggressive regimen of treating strawberries, um, including fumigating the soil to kill all living creatures in the soil before they plant the little strawberry starts. And rounding out the top three produce items with the most pesticides, grapes. Leafy greens aren't off the hook, though. Kale and collard greens are frequently contaminated with insecticides known to be toxic to the human nervous system. But potatoes have the most pesticides by weight. Lunder says that doesn't mean people should stop eating fruits and vegetables. Instead, she advises them to choose organic when possible. If you have limited money to buy organic foods, focus on those foods that are on the dirty dozen list. And when your organic dollars are tight, consider the Clean 15 as a group of foods that have very few pesticide residues on them. Avocados have the least pesticides of any food tested, followed by sweet corn and pineapple. Researchers test the part of the produce people eat, and generally fruits and vegetables with a thick, non-edible outer skin have less detectable residue. Most of the shoppers in my grocery store were surprised when I told them about the high concentration of pesticides on apples, and they had mixed feelings about buying organic instead. I'll be thinking about it, but I'll probably still buy the same food, to be honest. I'm poor, so organic's expensive. (laughs) We typically eat organic. Pesticides and other reasons, I mean, it just tastes better. It's just better for you. Yeah, I'm very definitely concerned about pesticides and try to avoid non-organic produce when I can. I actually get a farm share most of the year. I'm kind of the type that's like, it's worrisome, but um, there's not much I can do about it. I don't really know what to make of it. I mean, I like wash everything pretty thoroughly anyway. So This report, actually, the, the way they did it, they washed everything very thoroughly and then they tested it. So this is the pesticides that you can't wash off. Well, that's upsetting. <laughs> The pesticides USDA and FDA researchers found in this study can't be removed by washing the food. The shoppers I talked to were left wondering if eating pesticides on produce is safe. Sonia Lunder from the Environmental Working Group says there's no ethical way scientists can test the safety of people consuming pesticides. 
But several studies have examined the health outcomes of children who live in farming communities and were exposed to pesticides. These long-term studies of American kids found that kids with the higher levels of exposure to these pesticides had lower IQs and they had signs that their brain and nervous system development had been altered or disrupted from the pesticides. And in the IQ studies, it's like a six-point IQ drop, which is equivalent to lead poisoning. Lunder says the children in the farm study were likely exposed to more pesticides than the residue found in the food we eat. However, young children and pregnant women are still most at risk for problems associated with pesticides. So she advises people buying for those groups to be extra choosy in the produce department of the grocery store. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Coming up, how tiny creatures can help solve the big problems of soil loss and dust storms. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Soil is the delicate skin of the earth that holds everything from complex microbial systems to vast amounts of carbon that would otherwise add to global warming. Human activities have led to a lot of soil loss over the years, so some people are busy working on new approaches to help reverse that trend. One of them is Matthew Bowker, who teaches at the Northern Arizona University School of Forestry and studies how damaged soil crust might be restored. He sees much of the soil loss out in the desert west as the direct result of recent weather events and land use changes. For the last 15 years or so, we've seen out in the west an awful lot more dry years than wet years, also pretty warm temperatures. And that, in conjunction with land use impacts that people have out on the landscape, uh, we're seeing increasing emissions of dust in the air. So the, the dry west is becoming a dustier place. Now, how does this loss of soil affect the environment uh, in the long run? Not only are you losing soil that took a very long time to uh, develop and accumulate, some of the dust from the deserts in the southwest finds its way up to the snowpack in the Rockies and the San Juan Mountains. It's darker than snow, so it speeds up the timing of snowmelt in such a way that some of the snow is lost straight back to the atmosphere, and it increases the snow-free period so that plants are up and running earlier and consuming water up in the mountains earlier because of this dust from the desert. And when that happens, there's less snowmelt runoff going into the rivers. And this effect is sizable. This is decreasing the uh, snowmelt flow to the Colorado River by about 5%. So uh, what are you doing to address this? Talk to us about your research. Well, I am seeking to rebuild the living skin of the earth. I study a not very well-known desert community of organisms called biological soil crusts. Mm-hmm. And what these are, it's a, it's sort of an amalgam of cyanobacteria, which you may be familiar with as blue-green algae, and also mosses and lichens. And they grow just sort of in a thin veneer on the desert soil surface. They're common in deserts throughout the world. But the thing with these guys is they are very easily lost due to um, physical disturbances, things like livestock hooves or uh, vehicle tracks or human footprints. And they don't come back very fast. 
So a lot of my research is focused on finding ways and building a technology to rebuild these soil crusts. Uh, how do you do that? Well, some of these organisms you can grow in the laboratory. Then the idea is that once you learn how to cultivate these guys really well and cultivate the right ones, you then need another technology to sort of deploy them back out into the environment in such a way that they become established. The technology does not really exist yet to do it on a really big scale, with the exception of some fascinating stuff they've done in China where they've actually used straw to uh, stabilize sand dunes. And once they create the stability, they have been able to just naturally grow back both plants and these biological soil crusts. It still takes a while. Um, it takes a couple decades to really get a, a strong biological crust going, but it's an awful lot faster than recovery on a mobile dune, which, you know, you could sit around waiting for hundreds of years. So let's fast forward and say that you, in fact, find a way to uh, reproduce and then distribute this stuff on the soil. Where do you think this approach would be most useful here in the U.S.? Um, all the livestock in the West are creating issues with the uh, trampling due to their hoof action and the impacts that they have on these crusts. So I think what you could do is, in a place that has been uh, impacted by too much grazing, you could use this technology to sort of heal that area. And I think the other area would be um, in finding dust emission hotspots. Dust is kind of a hotspot-driven thing. There's a little bit of dust coming from the entire West, but there's an awful lot of dust coming from a handful of places. So a technology like this could maybe be strategically deployed in places that we identify that are emitting an awful lot of dust. Where are some of those uh, dust hotspots right now? Uh, there's one south of Phoenix. Um, there's a big area of uh, some used, some abandoned cropland. Just east of Flagstaff, there's a big area that blows dust straight to the San Juan Mountains. It's kind of a triple whammy of um, naturally erodible soils, some land use impacts, and our drought conditions. That's why it's blowing a lot lately. So that dust hotspot near Phoenix, we see that on television from time to time when a cloud just makes the city disappear. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the Arabic word haboob is a word for uh, dust storms that is now part of the lexicon in, uh, in Phoenix. People know that word now because they're getting used to these storms that slowly roll in that are, you know, uh, thousands of feet high. So overall, what do you think is the potential to use these organisms to heal the soil. To what extent could you solve erosion problems on a large scale? That's yet to be seen, but I think, it's, I think the potential is great. You know, if we solve all these technical problems and put in the research and development, we could really have the solution to these issues. You know, before, we usually try to uh, attack problems like this by trying to get more vegetation to grow and adding a bunch of seed to the environment, but that ends up being a very... Uh, expensive practice that really does not work well at all. Basically, we need something that works better and will continue to work better as our climate keeps getting warmer and possibly drier. Matthew Bowker is an ecologist at Northern Arizona University. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Matt. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
agriculture, cities, hydroelectricity, tourism, wildlife. There are many competing demands on the scarce water in California. That drought has focused attention on how we should manage our water supply as populations grow and the planet warms. And a timely book called Water 4.0 was recently published by David Sedlak, a UC Berkeley professor of civil engineering and co-director of the Berkeley Water Center. I wrote this book because I work in the technical aspects of water supply and water treatment, and I would have lots of conversations with people in cities that were contemplating new kinds of water systems, and I was surprised at how little they understood about this hidden system that delivers their water, treats it to make it safe to drink, and disposes or recycles it after they're done using it. Professor Sedlak writes, over the centuries there was water 1.0, when Rome built aqueducts and disposed of waste. Water 2.0 saw 19th century Europeans chlorinate and filter drinking water, followed by our present system, Water 3.0, that treats sewage as well. But David Sedlak says now it's time to update to Water 4.0. Well, we're all familiar with one of the first tenets of Water 4.0, and that's water conservation. So quietly over the last 10 or 20 years, we've seen indoor plumbing change as People are switching out their top-loading washing machines for front-loading washing machines, and we've saved a lot of water that way. We can do better, and we will do better. The other part of Water 4.0 involves the creation of local sources of water and the recycling of water. So those local sources of water are things like capturing urban stormwater runoff. We can also build seawater desalination plants, and those desalination plants can be a new local supply of water. And finally, we can start recycling our water, either recycling it close to the home with something like um, gray water, or we can recycle the sewage after it's been treated and put it back into the water supply. We use perfectly good drinkable water in our toilets. How should we change that system going ahead in what you call Water 4.0? The reason that we put perfectly good water into our toilets is that it's hard to have two separate types of water coming into the home. So once we built our homes with only one kind of pipe coming into it, and then we got this idea, well, maybe we should put uh, a second kind of water into a house, a recycled water or water of lower quality, it became very difficult to replumb and rebuild everyone's houses with a second distribution system. And so an alternative would be to find a way to get rid of our wastes without using so much water. So the modern flush toilet that many of us have in our homes uses about uh, a gallon and a half per flush. It's possible to reduce that with a vacuum toilet, the kinds of toilets that we're familiar with on airplanes. So you could reduce the amount of water that the toilet uses to a little less than half a liter if you went to a vacuum toilet. The water savings associated with that isn't huge, so it may not be a good economic investment, but over time we may be able to actually get away from putting drinking water into our toilets. Now, talk to me a little bit about the present drought that is going on in California. With your understanding of what we need to do to move forward with water, how can we respond to these drought situations? The drought that we're experiencing in California is the worst drought in many decades, but it's not the only drought. So we've had a drought in the Colorado River Basin since about 1999, and we recently experienced a pretty severe drought in Texas. I think the drought that is most instructive to us is the drought in Australia that occurred about a decade ago. And that long drought was a cause for major change in the way Australia provided drinking water to people. So the first stage of the drought looks a lot like the first stage of the drought that we see in the western United States. 
People call for water rationing and voluntary cutbacks in water use, and that gets you through a year or two. But we have to think of something more than just rationing and voluntary cutbacks. We have to start planning for this next generation of water. You talk about local water supplies as a way to respond to the threat of drought. Explain more for me. It's nearly impossible to build a reservoir in the middle of a city. But many cities have a reservoir underneath them. They have the local groundwater supply. So, for example, Los Angeles has some wonderful urban aquifers that serve as a source of water supply for the city. So those urban aquifers are like reservoirs within a city. And if we can recycle water and put it back in the ground, we create a local water supply that we can draw upon even during times of drought. What do you make of the social and cultural attitudes towards water supply innovations? How prepared are we? If the system remains hidden underground and people just turn on the faucet and don't think about all the effort that goes into getting the water to them, we can't have an intelligent discussion about water supply. And the idea of seeing water as going through a series of revolutions should comfort us a little bit. That is, throughout history, we've had problems with our water supply. They've seemed difficult and intractable. There have been unfamiliar new technologies we've had to adopt. And ultimately, we figure it out. And we become comfortable with having water that's treated or having sewage that's treated or having water that's imported. So a lot of the discussions that you hear now and the resistance to new sources of water supply should be expected by people who are unfamiliar with where their water comes from and why they need to think about something more than the existing system. So what do you think it'll take for ordinary citizens to realize that a change is needed? There's nothing like a good crisis to bring about change whether it's a public health crisis and people dying from typhoid fever and cholera, whether it's rivers catching on fire and the Great Lakes dying, all of these things prepare the public for the investments and the discussions and the decisions that have to be made about going to a new way of supplying and treating water. By the way, I, I hear reports that current drought in California is making the, the outlook for wine production uh, a little dimmer, and maybe that will galvanize people into action, huh? or it might force them to experiment with Argentinian and Australian wines. David Sedlak is author of Water 4.0, The Past, Present, and Future of the World's Most Vital Resource. And he teaches at UC Berkeley. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Steve. Part of the new thinking about water handling involves a decision by the federal government to restrict how much storm water runs directly off hard surfaces into waterways. For many cities, it's proving expensive, especially in older communities where culverts are in need of repair. To fix those systems, local governments are starting to charge residents a stormwater utility fee, what some call a rain tax. Julie Grant of the public radio program The Allegheny Front has our story from Pennsylvania. There's a big hole in the street in the small downtown of Meadville, 40 miles south of Erie. More than 70 years ago, much of the city was built over the top of streams, which are enclosed in concrete tunnels called culverts. Assistant City Manager Andy Walker says last summer when Meadville got hit with a huge rainstorm, one of the major tunnels clogged. Essentially the culvert became nearly completely plugged with sediment and debris rocks, branches, um, some from the storm itself, and frankly from other probably prior events where we hadn't done proper maintenance. A third of the downtown streets flooded. 
Cars couldn't get through. The water gushed over and under the roads with so much force, iron manhole covers were pushed up more than six feet off the ground. Six months later, Meadville is still recovering. Walker stands by the hole on Market Street. He says the city had to dig up the street to get to the underground tunnel. Then they had to figure out how to remove the branches and rocks that were plugging it up. And this is where we had opened it up to literally drag out the debris. Um, And we had a pulley system and dragging a bucket so that we can get it to this hole and then scoop it out with a traditional backhoe and load it out. The $150,000 price tag may not sound bad, but for a small city like Meadville, it's a significant portion of the budget. Thankfully, Walker says they don't have to spend money from the general fund. Last year, Meadville started charging residents a stormwater utility fee to pay for maintenance and for projects like this. Many call it a rain tax, but Walker doesn't like that term. And in fact, we try not to call it a tax increase because it is really a user fee. Walker says like any other utility, water or sewer, people are billed by how much they use it. In the case of a stormwater fee, property owners are charged based on the footage of impervious surfaces, such as parking lots and rooftops on their property. He says rainwater runs off of those surfaces and into the public stormwater system. Depending on the size of your parcel, that's your billing unit, that's your impact, that's your usage of the system, and you're billed accordingly then. Last January, the average homeowner started paying a new fee, about $90 per year in Meadville. Cities such as Philadelphia and Mount Lebanon, south of Pittsburgh, have started charging similar fees. More Pittsburgh area municipalities are expected to start considering a stormwater fee this year. We asked a few residents about it at a drugstore on the East End. Matt Marquette is a lawyer and a homeowner on the East End. I would support any uh, measure that uh, helps develop the infrastructure and limits any sort of pollution that goes into the river waters, which I think are a great local resource. But others we asked don't want a stormwater fee. In the greeting card aisle, Cheryl Fuller stopped to disparage the idea. We don't need another bill. We have enough. As homeowners, gas, light, water, sewage, and now a sewer fee? No. No. It's time to become a renter. (laughs) The state of Maryland recently passed the country's first statewide stormwater fee. It's expected to cost the average homeowner around $175 a year. Taxing rainwater. I know it sounds crazy, but that's exactly what the state of Maryland is doing, creating a flood of outrage. That's Jerry Willis on Fox News. Her guest is a county executive from Maryland, Laura Newman. So essentially the amount of rainwater that is outplaced by my structure, my building, my house, I get taxed for that. Is that the way it works? That's the idea. They're thinking that the amount of impervious surface on your property, meaning your roof, your driveway, your home, uh, will determine the amount of tax that you pay. I'm telling you, that sounds like a ton of dough. I mean, well, I can it ima- is. <laughs> Newman says the stormwater fee is expected to raise $14 billion by 2025 in Maryland. It won't raise near that much in Meadville, PA, but it's still a lot of money for some businesses and large property owners to pay. Cliff Willis is director of the physical plant at Hilly Allegheny College. Its stormwater utility bill was $70,000 last year. He says not everyone understands why they're being forced to pay for runoff from their parking lots and rooftops. 
in any community, particularly a small community, you'll have folks grumbling about additional fees and, and having to, well, we're just going to move outside the, the city limits then. Willis says there is significant development in a nearby township outside Meadville city limits. He says township residents don't pay for police, fire, or stormwater services. But as a former municipal engineer himself, Willis supports the new fee. I've been here for about five and a half years. And on at least two occasions, I've seen water running down Main Street deeper than six inches. So, yes, there certainly is a need for stormwater management. Meadville has already spent some of the money mapping its stormwater lines. And when a sinkhole appeared in one homeowner's backyard because of an old line, the city had the $60,000 it needed to build a new one. Meadville's Andy Walker says even with the money from the fee, they can't fix all the problems. He says when two inches of rain fell in less than two hours last summer, some people wanted the city to clean up water in their homes. You know, we're sort of demanding action now that they're paying the stormwater fee, and I had to explain to them that, you know, of a storm of that size, no matter what we did, you know, we, we almost couldn't throw enough money at the problem to fix and prepare for that size event. Pennsylvania already has a lot of rain and snow, and climate scientists predict larger storms in the coming years. Walker says even with the new fee, fixing the overloaded stormwater system is going to take decades. Julie Grant's story is part of Think Outside the Pipes, supported by the Park Foundation and Penn State Public Media. Coming up, heading for the hills to hit the high points. Just ahead here on Living on Earth, stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Collecting things is an age-old hobby. From snow globes to baseball cards to seashells, just about anything can be a collectible if you put it in a nice glass case. But there are people in America who collect something that is never going to fit in a case, a garage, or an attic, the highest points in the 50 states. Emmett Fitzgerald has a story from Foster, Rhode Island. Ask a group of Rhode Islanders what the highest point in their state is, and you'll get a few different responses. I've heard everything from the 15th floor of the Science Library at Brown University to the very top of the landfill in Johnston. Truth is, it's just an ordinary hill in the woods. Uh, Right now, we're, uh, well, we're at the trailhead, if you want to call it that, near the summit of Rhode Island State High Point. uh, It's Jerimoth Hill. Since 1992, Stoney Burke has crisscrossed the country in dogged pursuit of an unusual goal to stand on the highest point of every state in the country. Stoney climbs each peak on foot, but getting to the trail requires a lot of driving. Today, he's standing next to a red Jeep he calls Cynthia Rose, the car that's been with him the whole way. She's been to all 48 state high points at least twice. She's on her third time around. And it's got almost 395,000 miles on it. Same motor. Stoney isn't the only one with this vacation-consuming hobby. There's a whole club of people delighted to drive a few thousand miles to stand on top of Clingman's Dome, the highest point in Tennessee, or Mount Magazine, Arkansas's apex. I'm Roy Wallen. I've been in the High Pointers Club for a long time, 15, 20 years probably. The club itself goes back longer than that. 
Stony Brook says it began 30 years ago with a guy named Jack Longacre. Back around 1987-88, he posted an ad in Outside Magazine to see if anybody else uh, was as crazy as he was to go to the 50 state high points, and he got some immediate responses, and the club was formed from then. Since then, the High Pointers Club has taken off. Uh, we have over 2,500 dues-paying members. Only a handful of those have reached all 50 state high points. A few of the peaks on the list require serious mountaineering experience and a bit of luck. Stoney tried to climb Denali in Alaska twice, only to get blown off the mountain both times. Roy Wallen says you have to prepare for each high point differently. Today, because it's raining, I brought a rain jacket, and that's it. <laughs> um, if you're going to a big peak, I mean, you could have full winter gear and crampons and ice axe and... You didn't right. bring your crampons for Jerima Hill? <laughs> Not today. <laughs> Although it's only 812 feet tall, Jerimoth Hill isn't the lowest high point out there. That title belongs to Florida's Britain Hill, which clocks in at a mere 345 feet. Still, Stony Brook says the trip to Rhode Island's highest point isn't exactly a demanding trek. The elevation change from the road to the summit itself is, is negligible. It's probably maybe 8 feet. Although it's little more than a leisurely walk, Jerimoth Hill wasn't always so easy to get to. Back in the 1990s, Henry Richardson and Ed Bouchard ran a piano business out of their home by the trailhead. Henry and Ed liked their privacy and didn't want hikers wandering around their property looking for the high point. They would show up in the evening or they would have headlamps on trying to find it. They'd wander around in the woods because it wasn't really clear where the actual summit was. And Henry Richardson could hear these people in his woods and he'd get upset with it and uh, chase people out, sometimes with a bedpost or maybe even waving a pistol or something like that. I've heard several stories, and I have several friends that have those kind of encounters. Henry Richardson closed access to Rhode Island's High Point altogether, but the High Pointers kept coming. Once, a hiker from Iowa tried to take a picture of the no trespassing sign outside Henry Ned's little red house. Henry ran out of the house and asked him what he was doing, and the fellow tried to explain it to him, and Henry grabbed his camera strap, ripped it off his neck, and threw the camera to the ground and broke it. So he kind of ran away in fear at that point. He called the local police to see if there's anything he could do about it, and they pretty much explained that he lived in Iowa, and Henry was here, and he had a right to keep people off his property. Then, two men from Alaska tried to find an alternate route to the high point at night. They crossed through another private property a few doors down from Henry and Ed's house. And the fellows that lived there ended up holding the Alaskans at gunpoint until the police came and arrested them. Little Jerimoth Hill soon became notorious in the high-pointing community. Rhode Island's biggest bump stymied climbers with Rocky Mountain credentials. At the height of the Jerimoth Hill drama, the club website declared it America's most inaccessible high point. Some people even suggested the state circumvent the problem by adding eight feet to Durfee Hill, Rhode Island's second highest point. But the club continued to negotiate for access, and in 1999, they struck a deal with Henry and Ed to allow hikers access to the summit on a few days each summer. High pointers from all over the country flocked to Rhode Island for a chance to bag Jerimoth. On average, uh, we'd have 70 up to 180 people on those particular days show up. The open access days continued without serious incident until 2001, when Henry Richardson died and a couple named Jeff and Debbie Mosley bought the Little Red House by the trailhead. We made fast friends with the Mosleys over the years. They opened access seven days a week. When the Mosleys moved out, the state bought the land, and now Jerimoth Hill is open to the public all day, every day. As the rain picks up, we make final preparations for our ascent. Stoney suggests we time the trip, and Roy says he'll count our steps. We huddle under my umbrella and strike out down the trail.
You ready? All right, three, two, one, here we go. Okay, we're 48 seconds into it and there's another Jeremiah Hill sign. There's a little bit of cross trail here, we'll take a right. Getting close. All right, we're just about four minutes in. Pass another trail sign. Oh, have we arrived? We're here. This is the summit. As we catch our breath, Stony and Roy tally the stats. Uh, I was right at 300 steps. 300 steps, and our our final time? Four and a half minutes. Quite a journey. It was a rugged haul. I'm glad I prepared for it. Well, how are you guys feeling after that? Uh, a little out of breath. Uh, probably just sit here for a few minutes and recuperate and hope I can get used to the uh, altitude. <laughs> Roy says that as high points go, Jerimoth Hill isn't much to look at. Just a few rocks and a cluster of trees. <laughs> no, there's no view. But it's uh, a nice spot in the woods. On top of every high point, there's a registry book. Jerimoth Hill's registry is in a green ammo box nestled in the rocks. The damp pages are filled with names of high pointers from all over the country. Pennsylvania, West Virginia, the Woodlands, Texas, Gainesville, Florida, Dover, Massachusetts, Binghamton, New York, Silverton, Colorado. Here's a note. Can't believe I put my hiking boots on for this one. (laughs) Stoney scrawls our names into the logbook, then pulls out a pamphlet about the high pointers club. It lists some of the records that the club keeps track of. Most high points in a single day, most high points after age 75, that sort of thing. Oldest person reach a high point. Uh, Frampton Ellis, how old? 91 years, uh, 17 days. Uh, we've had the youngest person to reach a high point, Natalie Smith, is 11 days old, 35 minutes. That was the state of Pennsylvania. Dave Johnson has done all 50 state high points in the winter. That's quite an accomplishment. Dogs on high points, uh, that one always kind of cracked me up. The Pellegrinis, for example, uh, they've taken Aussie up to 36 state high points. That's a cool thing if you can do that. I think the dogs have every right to go to a high point, just like people do. Roy Wallen has a record of his own. Once he climbed the six New England state high points, Roy started going to the highest point in every county as well. I've done all the New England county high points, so now I gotta. If I'm gonna do any new ones, I gotta venture farther west. When you start collecting counties as well as states, high pointing can get a bit out of control. When we go on vacation, we go so that I can go do a high point, either state or county high point. What does your wife think? She thinks I'm crazy. It's, it's a disease. It may be a little crazy, but Roy says high pointing provides an organizing principle for adventure. To me, the best part is it takes you places in the country where you never would have been otherwise. I probably never would have gone to see Mount Rushmore if I hadn't had this driven obsession to go to Harney Peak, which was more important to me. And while not every high point would make it into Lonely Planet, each one has something to offer. They're all kind of cool, and it's, they're unique, so everyone's got its own special flavor and, and special attractions. Stony Burke closes up the ammo box and tucks it back among the rocks. Wet, cold, but not the least bit tired, we walk back to the car. Stoney's still got two serious peaks left on his list, Mount Denali in Alaska and Granite Peak in Montana. 
and he tells me he's not stopping anytime soon. Anytime I can get out on the road and go to a high point, I'm going for it. We're standing here in the rain today. I have no problem doing that. As we say goodbye, Stoney hands me a yellow high pointer's wristband and tells me I'm eligible to join the club. I've already climbed Vermont's Mount Mansfield, so only 48 states to go. But I don't think I'll be catching Stoney anytime soon. For Living on Earth, I'm Emmett Fitzgerald at Jerimoth Hill in Rhode Island. The periodic assessments from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, rely on a couple of thousand scientists from around the world. They produce a detailed appraisal of humanity's impact on the climate and what that means now and in the future. These reports are notoriously dense and, well, hard to read. NOAA scientist Greg Johnson was a lead author for part of the assessment published last fall, and he's come up with a simple, elegant way to communicate the complex scientific findings. Seas rise as they warm. Rates quicken last century. Melting ice joins in. Oceanographer Gregory Johnson joins me now to share more of these uh, IPCC haikus. Welcome to Living on Earth, Greg. Hi, thanks, Steve. So how did you come up with this idea, IPCC as haiku? Well, actually, I was sick one weekend, and I was uh, really sick enough to be unable to leave the house. And so I was trying to figure out what I would do for the weekend. And for some reason, I thought I would reread the uh, summary for policymakers from the Working Group 1 report to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's the one on the physical science basis of climate change. And like you said, they are very dense documents. And so I was reading this, and I was having trouble concentrating. Wait, you, you, you'd worked on this. You knew it was supposed to be there, and you, <laughs> and you couldn't stay focused? <laughs> well, I was a little – I was sick. And But anyways, I thought it would help fix it in my mind if I tried to compose a haiku uh, for each of the subsections of the report. But I sat down and I composed these haiku. Uh, it took most of the morning and, and a little bit past lunch. Uh, and then my wife said, what on earth are you doing? I think she was... <laughs> and at that point, I, I sort of thought, well, what am I doing? And I realized that I could make them into a little illustrated booklet to share with friends and family if I added some illustrations. So you're an oceanographer for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and uh, you're a lead author for the uh, Working Group chapter on oceans. But this is not any kind of official document. That's correct. These are solely my own creation. Any views or opinions expressed in these are my own and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States government, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or any other entity. So these poems basically go in order of the bullet points for the report. Will you read the first point as haiku, please. It's called History, Earth. That's right. Big, fast carbon surge. Ice melts. Oceans heat and rise. Air warms by decades. So that's essentially the recent history of the Earth's climate in 17 syllables, huh? <laughs> that's right. So remind us of the rules of haiku. So the rules in English are different from the rules in Japanese, but the strict rules are of a syllable count of 575 five in the three lines. Uh, they're supposed to be a reference to the season. 
Uh, and the Japanese have specific words for these, I think. These don't necessarily have references to seasons in them, but they do have references to change in climate. And I thought that'd give me a pass on that. And then they're also supposed to have what the Japanese call a cutting word, sort of a transition. Uh, and not all of these do have that, actually, uh, but they do all follow the 575 rule. Now, will you read two more for us that are closely related? They're called response and attribution. Yes. The first one is response. We burn more carbon. Air warms for decades, but seas for millennia. And then attribution. Our industry has warmed oceans, air, lands, changed rains, melted ice, raised seas. It's incredible how so few words can be so powerful. What got you going with haiku? I post almost exclusively in haiku on Facebook. I find that it helps me be in the present. It tends to link my posts a little more closely to nature and what's going on around me. And it also limits the number of posts, which my friends probably like. Now, it seems that all of your poems are accompanied by a watercolor painting. The last one about industry goes along with a painting of an oil rig. There's another with a painting of windmills on a rolling hill. Will you read that, please? Uh, Let's see. Fast, strong action will reduce future warming, but rising seas certain. So, Greg, what kind of responses have you gotten so far from this project? They've really been quite positive, but I have to say, actually, it took some time on my part to get up the courage to put this out there. This is, of course, a distillation of, as you said, work of 209 lead authors, 50 review editors, 1,000 expert reviewers. So a huge amount of work went into this. But the response actually to the haiku have been remarkably positive. What kind of response have you gotten from your IPCC (laughs) co-authors? They enjoy it. I did make a number of little uh, booklets on my own dime and have given them to friends and colleagues and authors. And it's been a positive response from them as well. You run out of the booklets? Uh, Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) What's your publisher say? Uh, I don't, <laughs> don't have a, uh, uh, I don't have a publisher. These were all self-published. I can't uh, actually profit from these in any way because they are related to my, my work, and that's just one of the rules of my employer. Well, we're just about out of time, Greg, but I wonder if you'd read uh, one final haiku for us, perhaps the one that you titled Future. All right. Forty years from now, children will live in a world shaped by our choices. Greg, you have children? Uh, I have a, a daughter. Who's how old? Uh, she is 17 now. So when she's 57? The world will be a very different place, I think. And it will depend on, on what choices we make. We're living in a world now that's already shaped by our choices. Greg Johnson is a NOAA oceanographer and lead author of the Working Group 1 report chapter on oceans. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Oh, thank you. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Lauren Hinkle, Jake Lucas, Abby Nighthill, Jennifer Marquis, and Olivia Powers all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And please like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International